Hi, you're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Impact Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm Pastor Brandon, the church planter and lead pastor. We are a new church in the D.C. area that is centered on the gospel and sent to our neighborhoods, Northern Virginia, and the nations. Please visit our website at www.impactfxbg.church. There, you'll find our current meeting times and locations. Our prayer is that you are encouraged by the message you hear today and fall more in love with Jesus and others. Thanks for listening. Praise God. Good to be with you all. Thank you for the invitation uh, from our dear brother Brandon, who we love so dearly, him and his wife Ellen. They serve us so well in, uh, in a variety of capacities with Sin Network, uh, from helping to train up guys, other planters and pastors uh, in our network, and then helping us with our assessments. And so we appreciate them a great deal. I'm sorry I missed my brother, but he is having a great time in Greece, I'm sure, a place that I would love to go. Um, also, as he mentioned, I work for the SIN Network. We help to ch- uh, plant churches all over the uh, DMV, DC Metro, and we have about close to 75, 80 churches that we are currently working alongside, and we help to, to do more of that work. And so I was highly encouraged because SIN Network is equivalent to GO, what you guys are doing. The Lord tells us to go as we are going, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And we plan to do that. And so when, when I hear churches uh, initiating those efforts, initiating those works, and I'm hearing the testimonies of the laborers, because uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, right? We know that. And so to see that, that five, and then obviously there's more involved within the groups of those fives, um, that is a joy. That is a joy, a joy, and a joy. And so keep doing the work. I encourage you to do that. And I pray that the Lord will bring many more disciples through your efforts. Amen. Let's dive into Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. It's probably a familiar passage that you all know and uh, have heard Brendan preach on. Uh, And I'm pretty sure his message is probably better than mine. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Let me read this for us and we'll dive into it. This is unique. I'm not used to preaching from a table, man, but I'm going to get used to it today. Let me see here. Maybe this will work. Um, Let's read together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who was mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father, we just ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word implanted, uh, that it would take deep root, that nothing would pluck it out, scorch it out, distract us, God. 
but it would produce a, a right harvest pleasing to your kingdom. Allow us to be doers and not just merely hearers of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we dive into it, let me just talk a little bit about this author and what we can learn from the book of Mark through this author. Now, Proverbs 17, verse 17 tells us that a friend loves at all times and that a brother is born for times of adversity. So a good friend, a true friend, according to scripture, does not bail on you when times get tough, but one who with wisdom loves you through it all and is willing to walk alongside you as uh, you endure rough seasons that comes with this life. Now, some here this morning uh, have experienced a broken friendship. Maybe you've experienced a tarnished uh, communication with a close associate. In the beginning, you had trust. Uh, you, there was peace. There was this genuineness. You considered each other a brother or a sister whom you could call on in times of adversity. But along the way, something happened in that relationship. Something happened that became a source of division with you and your friend. It could have been a lie. It could have been gossip. Argument, selfishness, jealousy. Or maybe they just were unreliable. You couldn't depend on them. Whatever the case, the two of you couldn't see eye to eye anymore, and so you parted ways. And you haven't dealt with that person since. I don't know. Now, has that happened to anybody in here? All right, you can talk back. To, okay, I see a few hands. All right, all right. Okay, not just me, huh? All right. So you just have to agree to disagree with this person. And you let the Lord deal with it. I've been there. I've been the one who has gotten fed up and walked away from others. But I've also been the one who has caused others to walk away from me. Interestingly enough, the writer of this book, the Gospel of Mark, had a similar experience. On his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, while traveling to Pamphylia, John Mark left them. Paul and Barnabas, they returned to Jerusalem, and it's uncertain why John Mark left them. We don't know why, but still, whatever the reason was, his desertion irritated Paul so much that on the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, verse 38, when Barnabas walked to take John Mark, uh, wanted to take John Mark, Paul strongly opposed it because he considered him unreliable and unable to carry out the ministry's work. This caused Barnabas and Paul to separate too. See, and once a person, they say, once a person shows you themselves, wishy-washy, or unreliable, we discount what they say and no longer consider their words valid. See, over time, there was a change in this young man, John Mark. But there was also a change over time in Paul's view of John Mark. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes that this brother, John Mark, is useful for service. And also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and also in Philemon, verse 24, he writes that he is called one of Paul's key helpers, one of Paul's fellow workers, John Mark. And I'm sure during the moment of disagreement and abandonment, Paul 
could not have imagined that this brother John Mark would ever be considered, excuse me, or who was once unreliable and who was once undependable and who he considered weak and unfit. He never would have imagined that this brother would become one of the greatest contributors to the kingdom of God. See, a couple of lessons we can learn from the uh, circumstances of Mark and Paul is this. One, be careful not to judge. Be careful not to belittle. Be careful not to dismiss people that we, our society labels as unfit or unreliable because the Lord in his timing has a way of surprising and humbling all of us. He'll bring us back full circle where we can become beneficiaries of that brother or that sister's service. Secondly, those of us who may be in, a, who may be in or were in Mark's position, don't give up on yourselves. Remain steadfast in Christ. Follow him faithfully. And watch over time how the Lord develops you. Amen. Amen. That's what we're going to learn from our author this morning. So let's dive into verse 1. And before I give you, before we dive in, let me give you these these five categories that we're going to talk about this morning from verses 1 through 8. First, you have John's action. You have John's action in verse 4. This one bullet point. You see John's message, John's message also in verse 4. You see John's locale, his location, verse 4 and 5. Then you see John's modesty, John's modesty through 6 and 7. And then John's selflessness, selflessness, verse 8. John's action. John's message, John's locale, John's modesty, and his selflessness. Those five categories. So in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins his writing by letting the readers know what he's writing about right here which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel, as we know it, means the good news about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's how unbelievers are saved, how unbelievers are reconciled to a holy God. It's how he saves us from an eternal hell. And brings us into everlasting life, those who believe in the Son of Jesus Christ, which is Jesus Christ. But I wonder if this was how the spectators of that day would have understood it, the word gospel. Because the audience that Mark was writing to was primarily Gentile Roman Christians, not Jews. See, the Jews would have understood the word gospel in their context to mean the good news of a sovereign or supreme ruler taking his throne Messianic promise, as in the king coming to establish his kingdom in Israel. And then you have the Roman hearers, or the Gentile, or pagans. See, they would have understood it in a similar fashion, but without the Jewish connection. No promise of a coming Messiah. 
but in their framework, they would have understood it to mean the arrival of a God, small g, of a God, just not the God. They would have envisioned their God to be much like the person of Augustus Caesar, someone who would rule in there as their emperor to lead them into a peace and prosperity. So we see two sides that interpret gospel differently. Primarily based on what? Based on their ethnicity, based on their culture, based on their context. And the question for us today is, how do we understand the word gospel? Because we also have different ethnicities. We have different cultures. We have different contexts. Oftentimes, that is what people filter through, how they interpret this world. Hmm. I wonder how we understood it. How do you think your neighbors would understand it as we are going out, as we are evangelizing, as we are trying to make disciples? See, when you hear it, what comes to mind? Gospel. Is it the same now as when you first heard it? Or has it evolved for better or for worse? Some only associated with music, gospel music. That's the only thing I used to think when I was a kid. Gospel, I I thought it was music. Or as this affirmative statement, like a positive add-on. For instance, if you were to say something profound, factual, or share some positive news, the person would respond by saying that's gospel. I have friends that just say it all the time back in the day and call, oh, yeah, that's gospel. Okay. This one may be a little bit better. When you hear gospel, maybe you think of the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's all you know about it. I just know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. I don't know what's inside Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, but I know the names. See, when it comes to the gospel, what we think about it, how we understand it, and how we apply it, it exposes our theology. It exposes our orthodoxy. It exposes our orthopraxy. What do I mean by that? It exposes your understanding of God. Is what you believe correct? And is your living right? That's what those categories mean. Do we understand God? Do we believe the right way? And are we living the right way? See, the gospel undergirds all of that. It undergirds all of the Christian life. So Mark says that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. The name Jesus, meaning Yahweh, is salvation. He will save people from their sins. And then Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah. Then he says the son of God. Now he is talking about his lineage, meaning he is one in nature with God, his co-equal. Mark has given us a lot of theology in these opening verses. Deep. He's explaining all of this, something he knows the Jewish uh, hearers would know. But he is explaining also to the non-Jewish hearers. He's given so much theology right here. But that's just not it. Now we see in verses 2 through 3. So after telling us, John Mark, after telling us, uh, excuse me, yes, John Mark, what he's writing about, Mark then gives credibility to his claim about the coming Christ by showing us that what he was talking about was spoken of long before him. He's saying... I'm not the first to say this. I believe you guys are already aware of this. Let me show you. 
He does this by quoting from the book of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and also Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. However, Mark doesn't mention a prophecy about Christ. Instead, he quotes a prophecy about the forerunner for Christ, John the Baptist. John was, I think you guys know, this is Jesus' cousin. The one that Luke described as being filled with the Holy Spirit and leaping for joy inside his uh, mother's womb when Elizabeth heard that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, that John the Baptist. So the question is, why would Mark speak of someone other than Jesus? If this is the gospel. What's the purpose of a prophecy about John the Baptist? Mark may have known this. Mark may have known the audience who would read or hear about this writing. Maybe that's in his mind. Remember, remember that he is not writing to believers and unbelievers. Uh, excuse me, that he's writing to believers and unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles. And the history and the culture that they would have been familiar with would have been that of kings being announced uh, about on their arrival by a messenger days before the king arrived. That would have been their culture. A messenger coming ahead, days ahead, before the king arrives and announces to them the king is coming. See, kings did not announce themselves when they arrived. They always sent a messenger days ahead, days before the king came, alerting the people so they could prepare themselves for the king's arrival. Also, keep in mind that he's quoting from Isaiah and Malachi. So to him, if there was a skeptic reader of this letter saying that they were unaware of this coming king and that no one had ever spoken of him, Mark could simply say, no, I can point you right back to this Old Testament passage and saying, no, there was one crying in the wilderness. You would have heard about him. His name was John the Baptist. And Isaiah, the prophet, spoke of him. So you have no excuse. You have no excuse. It's kind of like us today. We can always point back to the New and the Old Testament passages. To every single Christian and say, no, 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 no. You knew about this. You know Jesus is coming soon. And Jesus also says, come and get your house in order. And he has sent us to prepare the way for him who is coming back soon. That's our role as evangelists. That's our role as we make disciples. And John will say, but if you don't know about John, if you don't know, well, let's observe about him just a little bit. And so in verse four, we see the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. Now, beloved, this morning, let's get one thing straight. Just one thing. Baptist was not John's last name. <laughs> just want to make that real clear. It's not John's last name, all right? Uh, you may have thought it was just like I did for a long time as a kid, pre-Christ, I guess, and probably even as a young Christian. Yeah, Baptist is John's last name, yeah, but no, it's not. It's not. It was a descriptive term to distinguish who John was. In the original translation, he is John the Baptizer. John was a widespread name, very common in the century, just like many others. They would have needed to add attributes, characteristics, or even a relative to a person's name to separate them from others. 
Excuse me. So since John baptized, and that's what the community associated most with John, naturally that's what stuck. Our, excuse me, our world no longer really functions like that regarding a person's last name, or does it? I don't know, does it? We have birth certificates and government IDs with our last names, but do those names really mean anything anymore? See, the name helps to identify a person, but it doesn't describe who they are or what they do. If you were trying to help a friend remember someone but couldn't remember their name, you would describe them by who their spouse is or who they dated, uh, what their job was or who their friends were. Or you might describe them based on something weird that they did. Y'all get that. But here comes the hard part, maybe. Or maybe easy for some. If you had to remove your last name and let society replace it with an adjective, verb, or some sort of characteristic, what do you think they would call you? Hmm. If they had to label you, remove your last name and put this identifying marker, what would society label us? What is it that you do? What is it that you say? What is your life like? When outsiders, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about the qualifications of an elder, but I believe that also applies to every single Christian, that we ought to live in, in a certain way, that we are affirmed by our walk and by others around us. It talks about they must be thought highly of by outsiders. How do outsiders think about us, not just those in the household of faith? What do outsiders think of us? How do we speak on a, on a job? You may not cuss, but is it also with grace and with wisdom? How do you carry yourself? Just ponder on that. I don't want to call anybody out. Let us meditate on that for a minute. What would society call you? See, baptism is what characterized John. He didn't receive his name, his title, or recognition because he gave it to himself or because who his family was, or because of who he hung out with. It wasn't by proxy. It was based on the frequency and the consistency of what he did. His spiritual gospel habits became his identity. Man, his spiritual gospel habits became his identity, and it needs to become ours. Do our spiritual gospel habits, are they even habits for one, but are they becoming our identity? Or is our identity still synonymous with worldliness? So you may be thinking, but brother, JD, didn't everybody baptize during that time? There were other people baptizing, right? Why was John the only one talked about? Well, the answer is no. Everyone didn't baptize. And the Jews didn't practice baptism. There were no baptistries, churches, or first Lord's Day of the month baptisms. That didn't exist. The only baptism Jews would have done was symbolic events, where they would have uh, baptized a Gentile into Judaism. When a Gentile wanted to become a true worshiper of the true God, uh, that's when it would occur. It's called proselyte baptism is what it's known as. So why was John given that identifying marker? 
because he consistently practiced something unusual and uncommon. He was living countercultural. He was living countercultural. Is there anything that we do that is countercultural? Is there anything that we do that is in step with Christ, in step with God, in step with Scripture, but is out of step with the world? What is it that we do that is different? First point, John's action in verse 4. We see in verse 4 that John preached, and in verse 5 he baptized. Preach, baptize, preach, baptize. Preach, baptize. There's a correlation right there. If we preach, they will come. If we preach, yep, if we preach. We see that in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 14. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, then, how can they call on the name, call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Yes, we must preach. We must proclaim. What do you mean they will come? Well, in the text, it says in verse 5, following his preaching in verse 4, and all were coming to him and being baptized. That's not a promise now that everyone that we share the gospel with will immediately repent, turn from their sin and follow Christ. No, but Paul does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that he planted Apollo's water and God gave the increase. So it's God who can turn the heart from stone to flesh, but he's given us the responsibility and the opportunity to join in his work. Jesus commanded and commissioned us to go everywhere and make disciples. And in verse 20 of Matthew 28, he promised, don't forget this, he promised to be with us even to the end of the age. So that says to me that he will bring people to himself through us being faithful to proclaiming him. But preacher... What? Our pastors faithfully preach every Sunday. According to Ephesians 5, beloved, verse 11 and 12, he gave some of us pastors for what? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. What does that mean? The pastor's not the only one who preaches. And I don't mean in the pulpit, but I'm saying outside once we leave here. Everybody ought to be preaching the gospel through your word and life. Everybody is a part of that work. Everybody needs to get in the game. You can't just sit on the sideline now. Some of us like to. It's comfortable sometimes. But you got to get sweaty. You got to get some action in. First Corinthians often talks about the body. Everybody, somebody's a foot, somebody's a hand, somebody's a head, somebody's the eyes, somebody's the ears, nose, all of that good stuff. But we all work together because if somebody is off, the body will be wobbly. It will be off-centered. So it takes everybody doing their part, no matter how big, no matter how small. Everybody's involved in this game. Amen. So we see John's action, but we also see John's message in verse 4. So what was John's message 
in verse 4. What did John preach? John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the job of a forerunner, which we're talking about, the job of a forerunner, the job of a forerunner, which John is, is to prepare the way, to lay the ground, or to build a bridge for the one who is to follow and to prepare the people for his arrival. And what's the best way for the people to prepare for this king that John proclaims? By heeding the message of John. That's the best way. By heeding the message of John. So following the announcement of the forerunner, which was to repent of their sins and be baptized. That would be it. They needed to be forgiven. They needed to be forgiven. Being baptized, okay, didn't cleanse them or cleanse us of anything, but it does declare our intent. That's what baptism does. It is an outward sign to a public to a world, it's a public demonstration that our sins have been wiped clean and forgiven and that, they were, and that we are now committing ourselves to follow God. That's what they need to do. Heed to the message, which is following Christ, repenting of their sins, being obedient to baptism. That's what John's calling them to. That's what he's calling them to. See, the message of John was so impactful, was so impactful, that we see in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going to him and being baptized in the Jordan. Hmm. What was he preaching that was so potent that the multitudes were coming? The Gospel of Luke tells us that all John preached was judgment. This brother called people a brood of vipers and said that the wrath was coming. John would have been the equivalent of a fire and brimstone preacher. He didn't tickle the ear. He didn't come up with catchy cliches. He wasn't worried about making the crowd shout. He wasn't trying to be prosperity and say that your harvest is coming. He wasn't doing that. Mm -mm. He made it plain and clear. He said, God is coming to judge the world soon with fire. And he's coming with a one-on-one fork, separating the wheat from the chaff. John highly suggested to them that they repent and be saved. And John got out the way. He says, get your house in order. That's it. See, John knew that the word of God would not go out and come back void, but it would accomplish what it would set out to do. We plant we water, and the Lord gives the increase. That was John's formula of ministry right there. That should be ours as well. Plant, water, and the God gives the increase. We don't have to manufacture anything. We don't have to conjure up anything, make stuff to be attractional. We don't have to do all of that. Some of the stuff is good. It's not bad. But we need to be worried more about the vine and not necessarily the trellis at all times. So we got John's action. We see John's message. Uh, but we also have John's location, his locale. In verse 4 and 5. Remember what I said earlier about how the Jews did not practice baptism? Because uh, what we see now, 
in the text is Jews being baptized. We see now Jews being baptized. The Jews who consider themselves the spiritual elite and only God's chosen people were now saying through baptism that they were no better than a Gentile. Hmm. They were no more ready to enter God's kingdom than a Gentile was. Talk about sitting aside one's pride and humbling yourself. You can now identify with people you weren't inclined toward or sympathized with. Baptism, really? That's what it does? Well, yeah, that's what it should do. We're recognizing that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are, as Revelation talks about, how the kings were casting their crowns. We cast everything at the foot of Christ and said that we are absolutely empty. We have nothing in and of ourselves because we need you. Everything that I thought I was, everything that I thought I had accomplished, like Paul says, I consider it all dung. It means nothing. I am just as equal with this brother and sister over here, no matter the ethnicity, culture, or context. We are all seen as equals at the foot of the cross. This is now what the Jews are saying. They can now identify with the Gentiles who they thought they were way better, uh, better than spiritually. All because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, they can now recognize that they're all equal at the foot of the cross. Male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. But notice also where this was taking place. The location. It was taking place in the wilderness. Have you ever wondered why in this text these folks left their homes to travel to the wilderness? Why would I leave a place with all my creature comforts that has all the amenities, that has roads and everything like that and businesses to go to a remote destination with nothing there? A very, very rural area undeveloped with other threats and things of that nature. One commentator said it this way. He said to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must once again leave and come to the wilderness for salvation. I thought that was kind of kind of amazing. Like, huh. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. To go back to the wilderness signifies signifies Israel's acknowledgement of their rebellion and their desire to start over. Wow. This baptism included with going to the wilderness, going out to the Jordan. Their baptism, their, their, their willingness to go to a remote area, to the wilderness, just signifies all that they, were, that they were willing to give up. That's what it does for us as we go through baptism, as we come to fellowship with one another corporately. We are saying that we are willing to give ourselves up, our desires, our wants, our, our worldly passions for the sake of gospel community, for the sake of being reconciled to him, for the benefit of one another, for the growth of the body. That's theirs, that is also ours. Not only the location, but look at John's modesty. Look at John's modesty. 
in verse 6. <clears throat> John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust honey, locust and wild honey. Look at how John the baptizer carried himself, what he wore and what he ate. It seemed unusual in comparison to others around him. See, verse 6 tells us what he wore and what he ate. And basically, John was looking crazy. I think we would say that. John was looking crazy. He looked wild. He looked unkept. Imagine Pastor Hembry. You see him walking down the street or somewhere out here. And he has the same exact outfit that John is described to have worn. You would think something's wrong with Brandon. You would think, brother, are you okay? Matter of fact, if he walks towards you, you would probably back up a little bit and say, hey, are you sure you're okay? You might think that brother's dealing with something. He has a mason jar full of honey and some fried locusts on a stick. You would think something's off. Yeah, I would. I might have to call Sin Network and be like, hey, man, we need to get this brother some counseling. But that's how we would react to his appearance. Given our context and given our culture. Remember, culture, context. However, even though it was an odd dress and diet, the audience of that day and age would not have been thrown off. Uh, they would have understood what that, uh, his appearance stood for. Uh, most knew what the fashion was. His style would have reminded them of the prophets of old, of old like Elijah. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, tells that the prophet Elijah dressed in a hairy garment with a leather girdle around his waist. And Zechariah 13 talks about false prophets who desire to deceive by wearing hairy robes or garments. Therefore, this is why Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. That's where it stems from. They're trying to dress like prophets. They, they didn't want to look like that. So everybody knew how prophets dressed. Everybody knew pretty much what their diet was. See, they come to you in wool and hairy garments, and they knew exactly what it was. And so why did John wear this? Well, he wore it because his outfit was associated with a true prophet. And the people knew that, and they respected him as a prophet. Yep. We don't necessarily have that today, do we? How do we dress? I mean, hey, look what I'm wearing. I'm not dressed like a preacher as one would. Like, preachers, I guess, would have been associated with wearing suits all the time, suits and ties. We do not wear suits and ties these days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't. Uh, now, my mom and dad would probably say, son, put on a suit and tie, but they're old school. So, anyways. And his locusts and honey. His diet, it was also in step with the Nazarite diet. And the prophet Elijah was a Nazarite. And if you remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel says of John that he will go also before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John was, was uh, not concerned about the day's fashion. 
He wasn't worried about fitting in with the crowd. He did not care what people thought about him. John was a prophet and wanted to be taken seriously as one, had, uh, as one God had assigned for the task. See, beloved, we are called to be like the prophets of old. Not that you should dress and eat like them, but in sitting a line of demarcation through the proclamation of the word, humble and modest living, devoid of greed, arrogance, and pride. That's what it calls us to. See, we're not called to be puppets dancing to the beat of society's drum. No, we are called to live contrary to a culture that devalues God. That's what we're called to. And then lastly, we see John's selflessness, 7 through 8. Selflessness. So after John preaches his message, he turns to a different subject. It's as if John was like, now I've preached a lot of messages and I've had many come to repentance through my ministry. But there's this one guy who's coming and he, he's a bad boy. He's, he says, I'm not even unworthy. I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. I use water on you when I baptize you. But this man here will baptize you with something even greater. Beloved, this is a sum. This is the sum of John's life and mission right here. This is the point of the forerunner, okay? He points the people to Christ and not himself. That is it. That's the point. John could have been jealous and said, Jesus, he's okay. He's, he's not better than me. He could have said that. Being baptized in the spirit isn't much of an upgrade from water. He could have said that. No, John doesn't do that. Instead, in John chapter 3, verse 30, John says, I must decrease, he must increase. Again, John is not worried about being identified as the man. He's not worried about being identified as the best preacher in the city. Didn't care about having the most members. His concern was to proclaim what thus says the Lord, maintain the dignity of the office, prepare the people, and hand over the baton and get out the way. That is John. Hmm. It should be us as well. Maintain the dignity. Be faithful to the ministry. Be as, have biblical fidelity. Train up the other next generation. Hand it over and get out of the way. And let God do the work. Again, John was so humble that he considered himself unfit to untie Jesus' sandals. The lowest job that any servant or slave at the time could have had was untying the shoes of their master. See, John said he was so wretched that he didn't deserve to do that. That convicted me. It convicted me when I was reading it because it forced me to, to, uh, to question myself. Am I worthy of Christ? Easy answer is no. Am I worthy of all that he's done for me? No. But even realizing that and saying that I'm not worthy, do my actions say otherwise? Do I come off entitled? Do I come off selfish? Do I go daily giving no thought to God, giving no thought to Christ or the gospel and the impact on the people? Or am I striving to walk in a posture of humility, striving to walk in contentment with grace and thanksgiving? Why is this posture so of, of selflessness 
so crucial? Why is it so crucial as it relates to John and to us? Because in verse 8, John says that all he can do is stick you in the water. But the one who was coming after me, John says, can transform and will transform your life. That's why it's so important. We can't do it. We can't transform lives. We can't save people. All we can do is plant in water. So we must walk in humility. And we must walk in selflessness. Because we don't have the power to do what Jesus can and will do. He says, if you walk in a posture of humility, grace, and thanksgiving towards me, look at the work I will do. And when you do that, it shows that you are not leaning on your own understanding, but you're acknowledging me, Jesus. And so what does this do? When we lean on to Christ, when we see that he has the power to transform lives in this text, it speaks of the soul-transforming work of the Holy Spirit that only God can do. See, in Romans chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into death? He says, verse 4, we were, buried with, uh, there, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no, no, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so ask yourselves this morning, what kind of forerunner are you? And what and who are you representing? Are we living and talking in such a way that your peers, that our family, that our friends see a clear path to Christ, to God, to receive grace and mercy? Or is it the opposite? They only see us and us as a hindrance. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Not us making our appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when God sees you, he doesn't see you in you. He sees Christ covering you. And so why do we do this? From God will come away from their idols asking, what must they do to be saved? That they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, pointing to a beautiful family is good. Accumulating degrees is acceptable. Pointing to building and storing finances is excellent and promoting good health is great. All that is good in moderation. And when it doesn't become your idol. However, I guarantee that when you point to Christ, 
you have pointed them to what is best. Hi, Pastor Brandon here. Thanks again for listening to our Impact Church Sermon Podcast. If God has spoken to you today or you have a prayer request you'd like to share, please email us at hello at impactfxbg.church. If you're local to the Fredericksburg area, we would love to see you for worship in person. But if not, please let us know if we can help you find a gospel-centered church right where you're at. Feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram and on our website, www.impactfxbg.church. Until next time, keep living the dream.